right, well, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing in our uh, series through the book of Hosea. So open them up to Hosea chapter 1. We'll be focusing in on, let me get that balance there, uh, verses 10 uh, through 2-1 today. Uh, And while you're you're going there, uh, some of you may recognize this shirt that I'm wearing (laughs) Uh, For those of you who aren't clued in, many of our wives and ladies uh, pranked us this past Father's Day by having all the fathers wear the same shirt, so we were all pointing at each other like, hey, what what happened here? So uh, I figured I would go ahead and stake my claim and take back this shirt a little bit. Uh, I figure if I can wear it while preaching, uh, it is uh, kind of... No more on the the prank, so. (laughs) All right, so Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1 to give us the context, uh, and then we'll we'll hop into our passage. So Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. In verse 10 here. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as your children, to learn from your word. Lord, As the word is preached today, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this word to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Chris, our senior pastor, is is not here today, and I want to give a brief thank you to him uh, if he's listening uh, for giving me a little bit more of a softball this week. Uh, I get the redemption and restoration verses. Uh, He took on the curveball of of preaching spiritual judgment and whoredom, uh, and now I made the mistake of bringing that up, so apparently I'm going to have to preach on that a little bit. 
Uh, or I can just direct you to, to listen to his message from last week. It was a great setup for our series, and you should do that if you didn't hear it. But for those of you who didn't, I want to briefly cover a, a little bit of the context because it is so important for our verses today. So in Hosea uh, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1, there's a stark reality of God's judgment in these first nine verses. God's prophet Hosea is commanded to live a life as a living parable, um, a parable of God and his people, Israel. And Hosea is told to love and marry a woman, Gomer, who is a whore. That is, she chases after other men, sleeps with them, has kids with them, and then God commands Hosea to name these children awful terrible, difficult names which show that they are not his, but they are really showing God's judgment and curses that he is laying out on Israel for their unfaithfulness. So just as Israel is unfaithful to God, running and whoring after uh, Baals and idols and other gods and breaking their covenant relationship with God, which is a lot of what we covered last week, so Hosea has married a wife who is running after other men. And thus Hosea is living a life as a living parable, showing the broken spiritual reality between God and Israel. But I think it's important to note that 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 broken spiritual reality of sin for Israel is in some ways our reality too. In our sins, we are like Gomer, chasing and whoring after other idols and in desperate need of a savior. So there's a lot of confrontation going on in this book. In fact, we, as I think you'll see, we have these multiple cycles of God pronouncing judgment and then restoration, judgment and restoration. I think this, this cycle goes on about five times throughout the book of Hosea. And in the first nine verses that we covered, God confronts Israel with that judgment by declaring the stark reality of their spiritual adultery, of breaking covenants with God. And yet, here, starting in verse 10, there is an altogether different and unexpected type of confrontation. Here, we see that God confronts us with grace. Confronts Israel with grace. God confronts us and and Israel with grace. And Israel, and we also, are brought face to face with the horrors and reality of sin in verses 1 through 9. And, And that in itself is actually a kind of grace meant to shake Israel awake, to wake them up. But then in verse 10, we are jarringly brought face to face with the living God who then chooses to lavish grace upon us. And so as we work through our verses today, I hope we're going to see a few different ways in which God's grace so lovingly confronts us with restoration and redemption. So let's hop right in. We're going to be the first half of verse 10. And here I hope we're going to see that grace confronts us by doing what we cannot do. Grace confronts us by doing what we cannot do. And this is going to be looking at the Abrahamic promise or Abrahamic covenant. So let me read that again. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Man, what a stark contrast. If you're reading through this for the first time, you're reading judgment, covenant curses, judgment, and then all of a sudden, God declares promise. And this is a reference to the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. 
a covenant between Abraham, the forefather of Israel, who was alive some near a thousand years before when this was written for Hosea, and, and God. Uh, so a covenant between Abraham and God. And for a moment, I think it's helpful for us to go back and look at that promise. So um, I'm going to go back and read from Genesis, Genesis 15. If you have your scriptures, you can flip there. If not, we'll be quick through it, so just listen up. So Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 5, this is God speaking to Abraham. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here we see the promise as numerous as the stars. And you'll say, wait, didn't it say sand of the sea before? Well, yes, there, there are other verses that link number of the stars and sand of the sea. It's all one and the same covenant promise. So let's continue in verse 7. In verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know shall, that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 17 here. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces that were laid over against each other. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Now, I think it's important that we take a moment to understand the significance of a covenant promise. Uh, typically, this is something between two parties, and, and both parties are responsible. And it's, it's actually the most serious kind of pledge or contract you could make. Uh, way more serious than your pinky swears or even the, the signed contracts we make today. Uh, those you can get out of uh, by breaking them and paying I don't know if you're Elon Musk, something like a billion dollars. But <laughs> that said, for this, for the covenant, breaking it was a penalty of death. Have you ever heard the term, let's cut a deal? That's where this comes from. Because in the original Hebrew language, to make a covenant literally means to cut a covenant. That is, cutting the, the animals in two uh, with the blood sacrifice. So... We, we see that those animals are cut in two, and that's to symbolize, so shall this happen to me if I break this covenant. So we see this Abrahamic covenant, but did you notice where Abraham was in this covenant? God put him to sleep. So there's something different going on with this covenant, because we see that, that smoking fire pot passed through, and, and, and that's God. And, and so only God is the one who passed through these animals. And thus only God is the one who's saying that I will suffer the penalty if this covenant is broken. And that means broken by either party. And we know that God cannot and does not break his promises. So here we have an unbreakable covenant between God and Abraham that's sure to come about where God has promised that he will pay the penalty 
if Abraham or his offspring break the covenant, then God's going to ensure it comes to pass. God is doing what we cannot do. We can't keep covenant with him because we're imperfect, we're sinful, and yet God has promised to do just that, to keep the covenant even on pain of bloodshed and death, but as death to God. And so we here in the New Testament era have the full picture that Abraham did not have and Hosea did not have. We know that this has been fulfilled through Jesus. That Jesus is the one who died and Jesus radically confronts us with grace, doing what we cannot do, keeping the covenant where God himself shed his own blood in order to keep. And so pulling back to Hosea, that, that's the context All of that is packed into this this little bit of yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Hosea and God is reaffirming those covenant promises that he said he was uh, taking away uh, as a a threat to kind of shake them awake, a, a gracious awakening. So he's reaffirming those promises and calling Israel to remember, to know that the God who promised those, those promises is going to keep them, and he will see them through. So, again, our first point. Grace here confronts us by doing what we cannot do. That is God fulfilling covenant promises by paying the penalty that we deserve, yet through the blood of Christ. The second way in which I think we can see grace confront us today uh, is in the second half of verse 10, and it is that grace confronts us by making us what we cannot be. Grace confronts us by making us what we cannot be. So I'm going to read here the second half of verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. What warm intimacy here. God is undoing and renaming who he said was not my people to instead be children of the living God. And, and this isn't just some, you know, impersonal, oh, this is, this is, no, this is personal, this is intimate. This is an adoption into the family of God. And it's not by Israel's own doing, and for us it's not by our own doing. God is the one who calls them and names them. For us as Christians, he calls us Christians who have faith in Christ, children of the living God. And it's nothing that we can do. He simply declares it to be so. In fact, this picture expands actually even further than that to uh, be a part of the inclusion of of the Gentiles as the people of God. And we we see this in Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 24 through 26. I'm going to flip there real briefly so you guys have the context. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, and here Paul's quoting from Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so... God is including 
the, the Gentiles, and that, using this verse from Hosea, we see this in, in Romans, and that seemed like that, okay, that, that doesn't seem maybe super relevant to today, you know, the Jew-Gentile split isn't that big of a deal to us where, where it was for them in the first century, but maybe you know someone, or maybe you are someone who feels like you're far outside the camp of God, someone who's too far outside the camp to ever be included. Maybe there's a sin, a struggle, a thought life. I've done something. There's no way the Lord can forget that and, or could forgive that. Brothers and sisters, no one is too far outside the camp. God can declare it and can change anyone's heart. He can change anyone who was not my people into beloved and into a child of the living God. So if, if that's you today, man, I'd, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. You have the opportunity to come and know Christ and be a child of the living God. We'll most likely have ministry team members up here. They'll be available to talk to you. Or maybe it's just someone that invited you. But please, don't, don't leave today without addressing that, without acknowledging that. The other thing I really want to dig into here as part of Children of the Living God is, is a couple of application points. And um, with being included uh, as children of the living God, I think there are rights and responsibilities that we have. That is, that inclusion uh, in the family of God is just like inclusion in any other family in some ways. There are certain rights or privileges we receive for being part of that family, but there are also certain responsibilities given for us to walk out. And we'll take a look at some of those rights or privileges first. And by grace, we have been given an identity that we cannot claim by our own authority. And these rights that I'm about to walk through are not rights that are to be demanded, but rather rights and privileges that we must lay hold of by faith and with thanksgiving. So these aren't meant to be comprehensive. I'm sure there are many more, but uh, here, here are at least a few of the rights we have as children of God. Number one, access to the Father. I'm going to root this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Uh, For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know, just like uh, in our human father-to-son relationships, we often have access to our parents in a way that no one else does. And when I was thinking of this, there's this beautiful illustration I thought of, and it's a, a picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. under the Resolute desk. Hopefully it'll pop up here. Uh, in the Oval Office. Nope. All right. <laughs> um, so there's this picture. I'll have to describe it. This picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. He must have been like three years old. And JFK, here he is. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> And so he is sitting under there, peeking out with the most powerful man in the world sitting behind him. He has access to his father in a way that rulers of nations don't in that time. Uh, He can come to his father, sit there, and just play in the presence of his father. It's a wonderful thing. And, And so it is with us. We can go to our father with our deepest concerns. We can cry out to him with what we're struggling with. We can, we can run to him and celebrate our greatest joys. 
with thankfulness. Or, like JFK Jr., we can simply sit in his presence and enjoy time with the God of the universe. What intimacy of relationship there is in being called children of God. We have access to the Father. And what's more than that, we have his presence in us. That is the Holy Spirit to comfort, to guide, convict, empower us. So not only can we come to the Father, but God himself dwells in us. What access we have. The second right that I see here uh, is provision. I root this in Philippians 4.19. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. And this is uh, both spiritual and physical. So just as parents provide food and shelter and clothing, so too God does for us. And at times that's, that's physical. Certainly there are physical needs. But also spiritually. We are fed spiritually and nourished by his word. We are clothed with righteousness by God. We are sheltered underneath, uh, beneath his wings. What a wonderful thing to, to dwell on, the promises of Scripture when thinking of provision that we have as children of God. Number three, inheritance. I wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard uh, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wise and good parents leave an inheritance to children, to grandchildren. And, you know, sometimes that's financial. I'm not speaking strictly financially here. I also think there's an inheritance of a legacy. Living a life in such a way that your children and your children's children and so forth for generations are changed. And for us as Christians, that's changed towards living for God and loving God. So we have an inheritance as well in heaven, in eternity, something to look forward to dwelling forever with our Father in heaven. And with Christ. And we have the assurance of it. That is the Holy Spirit. Number four. The fourth right that we have here. Is loving discipline. And you're, I know you're looking at me. Alright. Loving discipline? What, what's up with that? <laughs> Why would you list discipline as a right or a privilege? Well, if you're thinking like, like, like that like I was. I think God lovingly... Uh, corrects us in discipline. And it's, it's a right that, that if we don't have, Hebrews tells us, we're actually illegitimate children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, I'll read it here. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, yet later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want 
to be disciplined because it's for my good. It's so that we can share in the holiness of God. It's so that it, it yields fruit in our lives, a fruit of righteousness, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. So um, loving discipline I see as uh, a right that we have to lay claim to as children of God. Number five, fifth point, kind of sub-point here, is authority or power. And I read that in Matthew chapter 28. Just as natural children often have the authority to do things in their father's name that they may not otherwise have to do, so it is with us. We're given power through the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, all authority on earth, on heaven and earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey or observe all that I have commanded you. The very great commission is based on the authority that has been given to God, and he is sending us out in that authority to do likewise, to go and make disciples. So we see access to the Father, provision, inheritance, loving discipline, and authority. The five points there of rights that we have as children of God. But we also have responsibilities. By grace, we are empowered to do what we cannot do in our own strength. You see, our identity as children of God doesn't merely give us rights without responsibilities. It's an identity that changes us, that changes our very desires and gives us the grace to walk out Christ's commands. We aren't given the rights as children of God without holding us accountable to the responsibilities as children of God. That would be giving us the privileges of Christ without knowing the person of Christ. Let me say that again. That would be like giving us the privileges of Christ without knowing the person of Christ. That would be licentiousness. And so... I think we can take a look at uh, about four responsibilities that we have as children of God. The first one to lay out is to honor the name of the Lord. This is rooted in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Honor thy father and mother. Just as we are responsible to uphold the honor of our family name, of our earthly families, what we do in this life reflects on others around us, reflects on our parents, reflects on our siblings, so too what we do in this life reflects on who God is. Just as children are called to honor their mother and father, Exodus chapter 20, Ephesians 6, 2, it's no different for our heavenly father. We have the responsibility to live in such a way as to honor the name of the Lord. And this includes not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? If we are partnering with lawlessness or if we are being unequally yoked, we are not representing the Lord well and honoring his name. Second responsibility here is to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just as a family has to bear the burdens that we walk through together, an example would be if a family member is walking through sickness or cancer, the, the whole family bears that burden of doctor's visits, treatments, side effects, even taking care of other family members who aren't sick. And it goes on and on and on. We have, what happens to one member of the family has effects on everyone. We all have to share and bear that burden. So too it is with us as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our responsibility to walk together 
and help bear one another's burdens. Third responsibility is to obey his commands. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We are commanded in Scripture to obey our earthly parents. So too with our Father in heaven. In fact, it's central to the Great Commission that I just talked about. Matthew chapter 28, uh, as you go, make disciples is the first command of all nations. Second command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Third command there is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How can we teach disciples to observe what God has commanded us if we don't know his commands? We can't. How can we teach disciples to observe all that God has commanded if we are ourselves not practicing that and not seeking to obey his commands? Finishes, and behold, I'm with you always to the very end, the end of the age. We are called to obey the commands of our Lord. Number four, fourth responsibility here is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This is Philippians chapter 1 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are called to walk out our lives in a worthy way, worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling, worthy of the calling of someone who is called a child of the living God. And so that's just daily faithfulness, taking step by step by step, walking in such a way as to honor the Lord. Now, I want to give a bit of a warning here. These, these four things, these four responsibilities, honoring the name of the Lord, bearing one another's burdens, obeying his commands, walking in, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, we can't do this in our own power. We are called to take a step and trust that God is going to empower us to do that, to be successful in that. And then for the next step, and the next one, and the next one. It's only by God's grace that we can faithfully seek to walk out our responsibilities. If we do it in our own power, we are going to fail. So in these responsibilities as children of God, it has to be rooted in what Christ has already done in us and is doing in us. Grace here confronts us by making us what we cannot be. It gives us an identity as a child of God that we cannot claim in our own power. And it confronts us by empowering us to live out the responsibilities of that identity as children of God. Fourth major way we see, or sorry, third major way we see grace confronting us here. Grace confronts us by restoring that which cannot be restored. And this is going to take a look at another covenant in Scripture, the Davidic covenant. So we'll start in verse 11 of our uh, chapter 1 of Hosea. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So like I said here, Hosea turns to another covenant, the Davidic covenant. And you see, at this time, when Hosea is, is doing his ministry, Israel and Judah are divided. And yet this verse looks to a day where Judah and Israel are united under one head and one king. 
And I think we can see this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as from formerly. From the time that I appoint judges over my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We see here a covenant that looks forward to a future kingdom that will be established forever. And again, we know on this side of the New Testament that Christ is the one who fulfilled that. And so too with verse 11 and Hosea, we see giving a future hope of unification to a divided Israel. Yet there is something else going on here. Because I want to get back to those children's names. Jezreel, not my people, no mercy. And here I think we see the redemption of Jezreel. It says, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Why does it say that? Well, what we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, says that God will plant Israel. Now, remember that Jezreel was kind of a byword for bloodshed or judgment because it was this valley where lots of God's judgment and bloodshed was poured out. And so, Hearing that name Jezreel, everyone would have just assumed bloodshed. But the literal meaning of bloodshed is that God sows or God plants. And 2 Samuel 7.10 says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So here, they, Hosea is, is giving hope to that child whose name carries uh, the byword of bloodshed, that it will be transformed back in that day to its true meaning, that God plants, and God will plant Israel, and from that an everlasting king, that is Jesus, will come from it and rule over it. And that day will be a great day that restores that name of that child, Jezreel, to its true name, God plants. So we too, I mean, it's, it's giving hope of a new identity. And I think that's something that we can take comfort from too. We too have hope of a new identity in Christ's reign, both here and in eternity. Now, not to forget that last child, no mercy. We see in two, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Again, the name that was... <clears throat> given, that was declared, that, that took away the promises of, of God, is now being reaffirmed that no mercy will be mercy. It's redeemed and restored. Our God is merciful. And these verses are showing Israel's future of hope, of redemption and restoration through the names of each of Hosea's three children, representing the hope of the nation that will one day be fulfilled in Christ. So we see that grace confronts us in at least three major ways here. By doing what we cannot do, that is, fulfilling the covenants that we break. Grace confronts us by making us what we cannot be, both in our identity as children of God and rights and responsibilities as children of God. 
And grace confronts us by restoring that which cannot be restored. That is, all three children's names now have a future of hope and mercy and identity in God. And yet, as we wrap up today, I want to take a moment. Uh, So we're not quite wrapping up. (laughs) Because when I think of this, this isn't just a Bible story. This is history. There are real people and real lives in this living parable. And we've focused a bit on how in, in our sin we're like Gomer, wayward from God and in need of a Savior to redeem us. But I think for those of us in Christ, there's, there's another application here. And that's for looking like how we're like Hosea. And so a question came from this to my mind. How would you feel if God asked you to do what he asked of Hosea? To marry a woman or a spouse of of whoredom so your life could be a living parable. Can you imagine the strain, the stress, the heartache, the being sick to your stomach with betrayal again and again that Hosea must have faced? If it were me and God asked that of me, my initial reaction is to say, no way, God. No, thank you. But I have to stop myself, or rather maybe the Lord stopped me, and, and ask, what does the clay have to say to the potter, what the potter chooses to do with his life? Romans 9.20 puts it this way. It says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? If he asks you or if he asks me to live a life where terrible things happen so that your life is a living parable, whoredom, idolatry, and betrayal, and yet, as with Hosea, it is a life that is still filled with purpose. The purposes of showing God's grace and redemption, ultimately. And when I think of that question again, I think that is what Romans 12.1 is really talking about when it means to live a life as a living sacrifice. And so I hate to spoil it for you, but when I ask how would you feel if God asked you to do what he asked of Hosea, the thing of it is, he already has asked that of us. In fact, he has commanded that of us. And we see that in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May our lives be an aroma, holy and pleasing to God, a life of suffering, yet a life of sacrifice that honors the Lord, that leads maybe one person coming to know God, or tens of or hundreds, or thousands, or even millions of people across time seeing the glorious redemption that God is bringing to Israel, as was the case of Hosea, and is bringing to you through Christ. And when I think on that question, I think, Lord, help me. Help me to be willing to live for you and for your glory in such a way, to be willing to lay my life down so that others may know you that others may honor you and so that your name is lifted high. I think that 
is the ultimate expression of the confrontation of grace that we see in this passage. So our, our last confrontation of grace here is that grace confronts us to enable us to live a life by dying to ourselves. Grace confronts us to enable us to live a life by dying to ourselves. To live lives of sacrifice. That by our continual laying down of our wants, our preferences, and yes, at times even our needs for the sake of others and for the cause of Christ, that continual lay down, laying down continually shouts to the world the story of our Savior who first laid his life down for us. Hosea lived his life obediently, living a life as a living sacrifice so that the God of the universe could confront his beloved with grace. Confront his beloved with the grace of judgment in verses 1 through 9, meant to awaken their dulled senses of Israel to their desperate need of God. Confront his beloved with the grace of a covenant upheld by his own bloodshed to hold his people fast. Confront with the grace of adopting these people and making them his very own children. Confront them with the grace of redeeming their very names. May we all be confronted by grace in such a way today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your word to Hosea, through Hosea to Israel. It was prepared for them and for us or that we may learn from it. We may see the glories of your grace poured out on that nation and may see the trajectory of Scripture pointing to how so much of that, all of that is fulfilled in the coming of your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. Lord, may your grace confront us boldly again and again and afresh in such a way today, this week, and the months and years to come. May we rely and live in that grace. In Jesus' name we pray.